Welcome to the Manufacturing and Supply Chain CEO Podcast. I'm Martin Harshberger, President of Measurable Results, LLC, and martinharshberger.com. I'm a retired CEO of both a manufacturing company and a third-party logistics company. We were lucky enough to grow both to eight-figure organizations. I've been consulting with small and mid-tier companies for the past 16 years. Our mission with this podcast is to provide a forum to help CEOs in these critical industries share their stories, share best practices, and learn from each other. If you'd like to be a guest in our podcast, go to www.martinharsberger.com slash apply. Each interview will take about 30 minutes. Thanks for listening. Hi, welcome to this episode of Manufacturing and Supply Chain CEOs podcast. I'm Martin Harsberg, your host. And today with me, we have Sonny Hahn, who is the founder and CEO of Fulcrum. Welcome, Sonny. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about Fulcrum. Um, Fulcrum is a, a beautiful ERP platform, which uh, those two words typically don't go that uh, <laughs> often together, but we've designed it really, really uh, thoughtfully for the purpose of making sure that people don't have to spend a lot of time training to use it. People can feel empowered by it instead of um, encumbered by it. And fundamentally, to drive more data into the platform so we can do cool things like automate scheduling and plan forecasting and things like that that otherwise can't really be done really that much because we're missing data all, a lot of the time. So we have a few maybe controversial beliefs. Like I believe that, yes, there's going to be a lot of automation and a lot of humans are going to be replaced by robots, but not for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So uh, in the interim, until that time happens, we're... Uh, spending a lot of time focusing on the human experience and the user experience. Uh, we're really doubling down on that and it, it's paid paid off well for our customers. So, Well, one of the things I'd <clears throat> excuse me, say is most of my clients uh, when I'm consulting is I try to stay under $100 million. I don't like to get into bigger companies. Too old and grouchy to deal with politics. <laughs> but most of those companies under $100 million don't have a lot of money for automation and robots and all the things you're talking about. right? So the human factors and and the process and all that is much more uh, germane to them probably than, than some of the larger companies. Do you see that? Yeah, I, I think that one of the insights that I've gotten randomly in the, uh, over the last decade and a half of working in this space is that the primary fabrication, the work of taking raw bar stock, let's say, cutting it and milling it and doing whatever you need to do with it, that's not being done by really, really big companies. Maybe they are for prototyping, or maybe it's being done in some very small specific capacity, but by and large, 90 plus percent of the component fabrication is done by companies between a few million dollars in size and revenue all the way up to a couple hundred million. And there's some private equity action going on, rolling up some of these businesses, and there's some um, you know, uh, companies that grow really fast because of some very specific skills that they might have. But fundamentally speaking, these are mid-market and small business companies that are doing a lot of the fabrication, at least here in the United States. Yeah, and we, we keep talking about automation, and really automation's out of reach for a lot of them. I mean, from a cash flow standpoint and investment standpoint. Uh, one of the things that I see in working with these companies, uh, I'm kind of getting off script here, but I want to ask you before I forget. <laughs> when you say about data, you, you want to collect data. Do you see a difficulty with some of these companies with actually collecting the data? Because one of the things I see is like KPIs and and the data for KPIs is um, uh, I don't want to say not there, but but it's it's kind of haphazard in a lot of cases. Do you see that? How does that affect your software? So everybody's 
recording data of some sort, right? Um, sometimes your customers require you to, to look at tolerances to make sure that the products that you, the, the production that you're doing is within what they want. Um, sometimes it's because you need to make sure that you have no open sales order. Sometimes you need to know what your inventory is. The reason why anybody records data is because they want an answer to a question. And sometimes that data is not recorded until the minute the question needs to be answered and it's done in a very painful way. But if an if a question doesn't need to be answered, then the data doesn't really need to be collected. But oftentimes we're discovering that the majority of the questions that we ask are really important ones that we know are really important and are very urgent. There's an entire class of questions that we might not even know that we should ask that just aren't available because we haven't had the urgency to push somebody to go collect it. So our philosophy is make all the pieces of data that we do passive and easy to collect. Right now, most of our customers are printing out a travel or writing some stuff on there, circulating around the shop. It gets collected into a folder at the end and somebody else has to enter it in. And if nobody's looking at that data, then it takes days, weeks, months before it's ever entered and maybe never looked at. And if it is looked at, it's so far in arrears that there's nothing you can do about it anymore. So for us, instead of using paper as a medium, let's use a computer, very common now. And because of that, we can not add any extra work to that operator or that machinist's uh, daily life, but also get more data in. And we're also getting more data from smaller um, devices that we help uh, implement that pull information out of the machines themselves. And those are getting cheaper. They used to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars for a a Siemens or a Rockwell automation panel or some sort of SCADA system to pull information out. But there's lots of uh, companies out there now offering very small $100, $200 devices to pull information out of the machines. And so we're getting there. We're on our way. Uh, but I think one of the things that is a bit of a paradigm shift is asking questions curiously instead of asking questions urgently. And I think that shift is going to be really valuable because think about how easy it is to ask a question of Google. And how much more you know and how much more curious you are because it is available than having to drive to the library or contact an expert and write a letter or something like that. So making that information more available, it's, on, it's very difficult for me to pinpoint exactly how you're going to benefit from it. But philosophically, I know that you will. So I, I agree with you. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. I'm, I'm saying that when I go into a client, typically I look at their dashboard or KPIs and, and the vast majority of the last... 20 years have been PL, PL driven. Sure. We try to manage up to PL. And so we try to set up some key indicators. But one of the things you just said that I want to get back to is passive uh, data accumulation. So tell me about that, because that, that would be huge if you could just collect it automatically. And, and uh, how do you do that? Yeah, I think the reason why those KPIs are all, always the same, just to go back to that point a little bit is because it is really difficult to find something generic that applies to every business, right? And those KPIs oftentimes have to be made very generically. Um, we don't have to do that anymore, right? People are used to being able to customize their and, and configure their own phones. There's just some technologies we can use that allows our customers to be able to do that. But um, from a passive data collection, really what we want to do is we want to make it so that no one has to do anything else more um, and is not more inconvenienced by using something that allows you to get that information. So you're already writing a number on a piece of paper, just type it into our screen. And let's make that screen really nice and easy to use and well-designed so it feels good to use it instead of something where you have to click around and you never know if you actually did it or not and you can't really trust it. So 
building that user trust really is the secret to getting the first layer of passive information. If the end user, if the operator is already doing it somewhere else, and we can make it easier and faster for them to do it in our system, we're just going to get more data, and we're going to skip that second person entering the data. The second is our machines, our sensors are, are, are producing a lot of information, and IR sensors and vibration sensors, seismic sensors used to cost a lot of money. They're no longer as expensive. Cameras used to cost a lot of money, and most devices, most phones, most tablets that only cost a few hundred dollars have a really high-definition camera there. So there's a lot of cool stuff we can do just by having a tablet at a work center and putting a, a part underneath the camera and seeing if it's close enough. And those technologies will get cheaper and get better. So I think historically, it's been a cultural block, a cost impediment, and fundamentally a technology um, you know, issue. For us, we're using a lot of modern technologies that really support having that type of data collection. But for us, it's, it's, somewhat, it's somewhat trivial. It's just a, an obvious thing that we do. Uh, but there's just a lot of data out there. And you don't know if you need it or not, but if it's no extra, extra work and a very small amount of extra cost, once you have it, you can now ask questions. Is Martin a better operator than Sonny? Uh, is it on this piece of equipment? Is it on this customer stuff? Is it on this type of material? Well, now that we have all this associated data, you might not even know to ask. And I can say Sonny is just really, really bad on aluminum. I don't know why, but he is. And there's a there's a statistical pattern here and we can dig into it. So a lot of these things are places where most of our customers' brains don't even go because they don't think it's possible. Um, yeah. and, and we're we're looking to to change that um, you know, that mentality. So Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, how did you get into to, to doing what you're doing today? Accidentally. Um, you know, in school, I was a math guy. I was the captain of the math team in high school. That was kind of my um, my my mo was I, I solved a lot of problems uh, with math and with science, with computer science. And for whatever reason, I just didn't have any direction after I left college and started working in consulting. It was during the recession. A lot of the the companies that I, I worked with were, you know, recipients of SBA loans. They were distressed. They weren't able to make those payments. And my job was to go out and look at specifically car dealerships, construction companies, manufacturing companies, look at their books, understand them, learn about them, help them potentially turn around and, and, and do some work there. So very accidentally got exposed to hundreds and hundreds of manufacturers and learned the space and saw this need and even still didn't start a business until I realized that no one is going to do this if I'm not doing it, at least not in any sort of like realistic timescale. So then I started, I started Fulcrum. So um, there is no magical story. Like my dad didn't own a manufacturing company and it wasn't as if I was like born on a shop floor next to a CNC machine or something. I, there's not, there's nothing, you know, super, um, you know, serendipitous like that. It was just the, the random occurrence of going down that path in my career. Well, you saw the problem, and and it, which is exactly when I started my company, it was the same thing. I saw a problem and solved it. You did the same thing, so I think that's uh, that's that's noteworthy. Where are you currently with your business? With the impact of the last eighteen months, or where we're at right now with the COVID, and uh, have you seen an impact? A large impact? Some of our customers in the beginning of COVID, you know, just basically had a complete shutdown of their businesses and then came back again. I think there's a lot of volatility, you know, in in the academic space and talking about manufacturing. We talk about the bullwhip effect. We talk about inventory values going up and down, having shortages and overproduction. 
I think we're seeing that. I think we'll see that volatility for some time to come. Um, but I think there's more visibility on manufacturing. I think this concept of using cloud software and being afraid of it existed all up until COVID. And all of a sudden, no one really asks about why your software is on the cloud anymore. They just understand it. They get it. They understand that it's trustworthy. So we've been benefited in some positive ways significantly. I would say that in self-criticism, we didn't expect to add you know, as many customers as we did over the last year. Um, and I don't think we were prepared for it. I think we're still catching up to the demand that we got. I think we were, we were trying to be as stealth mode as possible, appearing on some podcasts, like you know, working the network of manufacturing a little bit. But I think a lot of referrals, a lot of people actively looking for new technologies, there's just way more demand than we can handle. So we're, we're trying to slow it down, trying to make sure that we're focused on the product, focus on making it as good as possible before we open the floodgates, if you will. So for us, it's a lot more about putting more emphasis on prioritization and having a huge amount more urgency than we originally thought. We thought we'd just have more time, more time to be a little bit more okay. deliberate, but uh, the floodgates have kind of opened. So, Well, you one of the, one of the things I always ask is what's your differentiator, but, but I, I, I'd like to go back to one point you made because you're right about one thing, the ERP system just cost. If you're a $50 million manufacturer, it's a big, it's a big hit. And it's it's cumbersome. It's hard to learn, and typically, it doesn't get used uh, efficiently. Let's put it that way. Where's your cost point? I'm not looking for a price, but relative to the typical ER, ERP manufacturer, where do you sit? I mean, it- yeah, I think we have a different social contract with our customers, right? Most ERP systems, you have some block of money you spend. So let's say you're a ten million dollar company. Now, most of our customers are between that, you know even a few hundred thousand million dollar customers. Some, some of those are our customers as well. And some of them are, you know, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, but we use 10 million as just a benchmark. Um, usually ERP systems, legacy systems, current systems, you're maybe paying half a million to a million dollars over the course of two years on some services, a lot of consulting hours. You're probably paying another 200,000 to 500,000 for an upfront license. And then your monthly cost, your ongoing cost is, anywhere between 15 to 25% of that upfront license uh, every year for maintenance and updates and support and things like that. Um, For us, we do the implementation and we're not stingy about it. We'll spend as many hours as we need to with you, customizing things and writing reports for you and helping you set it up and helping you upload your data. We want to incentivize ourselves to make sure that you're successful on the platform. Um, There's no upfront licensing costs. Those two costs go from a million dollars to zero uh, but for us, our monthly cost uh, for that customer might be five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve thousand dollars, depending on how complex that that customer is. Over the course of five years, seven years, ten years, even at ten years, our total cost of ownership is still lower. But it's just a very different social contract. My goal is to incentivize my own company to want to continue to deliver really great service and really great product to you for the duration of the contract, instead of trying to incentivize ourselves to do a great sales job to close the deal. And I think that change in social contract, it's not less evil or, or better or whatever it is. It's just different. It allows us to um, work with venture capitalists, it allowed us to raise tens of millions of dollars to put towards the product. And we're just going to be a far better product for the entire duration of our existence because of it. And I think that'll win. I believe that strategy will win. I don't think we're the only ones that are going to do it. We might be one of the first, but other people are already starting. And I think that the market will be able to feel a different 
experience. It's not like I'm buying a piece of machinery, I have to maintain it, and then it goes obsolete. I got to buy another one. It's a relationship where you can trust that you always have the best version of the best features that are the most valuable to you. So you're never experiencing this thing where your competitors are buying software at a better time and are accelerating beyond you because they have more throughput and more profit and things like that. So that relationship is hard to explain sometimes, but that's how we are trying to operate our business. And that allows us... Is a differentiator. I mean, from what you're saying, because you do, you are taking away upfront costs, which is what most people stumble on. And what it sounds like you're saying, you got a budgetable number you can work with. And I would assume that in your in your work with the client, you're probably finding savings that are going to equal that or or better what your monthly costs are. I mean, exactly. If you do it right, there's there's you and I both know there's always waste and and cost saving be found in the manufacturing facility. So. I think it's a great model from what it's worth. And we want you to to receive your value as soon as possible. I have no incentive to add more customer reports that aren't that valuable and delay the implementation to make more billable hours for me. I can be incentivized to deliver all this value and get you launched and ready to go as soon as as we can. And that's what you want, right? You don't want to invest all this time. And I don't think, I think a lot of the irony is that a lot of manufacturers understand how gross whip is. You don't want to manufacture a bunch of widgets, subcomponents, and not assemble them to ship out and have them laying around your shop. But a lot of these ERP implementations are essentially a huge amount of intellectual whip that just sits out there and never actually gets implemented or used. We're trying to minimize the whip of implementation as well. And I think that analogy works with some people, and a lot of people get it. But to me, it's just it's obvious, right? And I think if you are a manufacturer and you see it like that, I think it'll make a lot of sense too. Absolutely, yeah. Where do you think the manufacturing industry is going in the U.S. now? I'm really bullish on it. Um, We could have decided to start our business in a a bunch of different countries. um, But I think that the U.S. has always, not always, but for for the knowable past, and I believe for the foreseeable future, has always benefited from being at the forefront of every single industrial revolution. And what are we on the fourth one or the fifth one or whatever they call it. Um, But really, I think America is where the core science is being done on AI and vision systems and AR. America is where new software systems are being developed. We're really ahead and in the lead venture-backed companies in having the most awesome things in robotics, in all of these supply chain and industrial automation technologies we're here. So that doesn't mean that we're all these technologies are all going to be super useful, but it does mean that we have a front row seat to see what's going to be useful and adopt it as soon as possible. And I think with climate change, with um, costs of, of gas going up, with an increased tariffs going forward, probably what's going to happen is we're going to understand that it's actually really insane to ship raw ore to China to get it forged and milled to ship it back to Singapore to get it packaged and assembled and then back to Mexico to get it final packaged to, to then be used in Canada again. I think we're going to understand that that's really insane. And the things that we use are here. The materials are here. The forges are here. We have the capacity. And I think that we're going to onshore just a unpredictably high amount of materials that'll be fabricated here in the future. So I'm very bullish on American manufacturing. I think it has to. I just wrote an article yesterday posted on LinkedIn about the supply chain. Uh, I, a gentleman in California made a 
post that said he had he'd been counting the ships offshore of L.A. and Long Beach. There's 71 vessels out there waiting in the harbor to get unloaded. So I looked at the ship tracker yesterday and the map of the U.S. Oh, my gosh. I never, I, you, you can't believe it's just congested out there. The supply chain is just scary. I mean, if we're going to make Absolutely. it here, I mean, that, that, if nothing else, has to drive some of that back on shore. Yeah, just like every one of our customers, nobody has infinite capacity, right? So our system in general, it can handle a lot, a lot of throughput. What it can't handle is big bursts and big valleys. People go out of business in the big valleys and they aren't able to handle their their uh, their capacity and backlog in the peak. So what we want, what our supply chain has been designed for is low volatility, high volume. And I think that that is the way of the past. Things are going to get smaller. Things are going to get more personalized. There's more iPhone colors than ever. And there's more little devices that are being kickstarted than ever. There's individual things being made on Etsy. And I think people are going to crave personalization, individualization. There's going to be more new models of cars faster. There's going to be new technologies being going to be diffused and dispersed faster. And what that means is smaller production volumes, where the economy of scale of outsourcing a billion units to China just starts to go away. And all of these things, I think, are happening at the same time. And I worry that we're not ready locally for this. Um, and, and by the way, it's not just America, right? I think Europe will do more European manufacturing for European customers. And I think Asia will do more Asian manufacturing for Asian customers. And I think America will do more American manufacturing for American customers. It just makes sense. We just had different parts of the world not catch up in terms of e economic differences, right? Those will start to equal out over time. And those advantages will just disappear. So um, I don't think we're ready. I think there's a lot of work to do. I treat the work that we do as just a very small component of it. And if we were just one large tribe uh, somewhere, I think this would be almost an all hands on deck moment where we have to figure out the way that we make the useful things that drive our lives. And then we can go back to doing other stuff. But uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that there's a lot of attention on it. I'm, I'm glad that people are thinking about supply chain stuff. I'm glad that manufacturing is a, a much bigger, you know, top of mind conversation for a lot of people. I think that's what we need. But I think we need even more of that. So. That's that's the um, focus behind this is try to put more emphasis on manufacturing and try to try to bring some of the STEM activity and, and so on back into manufacturing. And the, the biggest one of the things I always ask people, what's the biggest threat? Your biggest threat or opportunity? I think you've kind of answered that. But I think the biggest threat to manufacturing overall is labor. Yep. And it's, it's Absolutely, uh, it's it's any labor. Uh, so I, I think we're going to have to address that somehow collectively. Yeah, and I think it creates great opportunities for other companies that are automation companies, because for the first time in a long time, automation isn't something that replaces jobs. It's needed because we can't find the people to fill the jobs, right? Yeah. So I think we're in a very unique and somewhat wonderful time that I think will last for decades, where we're going to start approaching automation more as a human and machine interface, and less of a choose one or choose another zero sum type of a thing, right? So yeah, it's a good point. Somebody's going to fix those, those machines too. That's the other thing. Uh, the, the maintenance and and, and the troubleshooting and and keeping them running. Mm -hmm. uh, so, what, what's your future focus in the next two years? I think for as long as we're able to, the focus is going to be on product. Most technology companies like ours, most CRP companies, the traditional pathway is to spend ten to twenty percent of all your money on product. Here at Fulcrum, we spend sixty seventy percent of all of our time and energy and money on products. 
and I, I believe that there's just so much to do and update and, and improve and, and make better and, and new features that no one else has even thought of that are valuable. I think we have two, three, four, five, six years of backlog on that where we have to crush through them. We have an idea factory that's putting out shipments that are execution factory can't even keep up with, right? We have a backlog there. So in internally speaking, one of our biggest focuses, I think, for the rest of our existence is going to be product making the product as best as possible. And I think that that probably you know, resonates well with our, our, our customers who are also focused on making the best products they can for their customers. So um, in that way, I think we're aligned with the market. Another thing that we're really focused on is making sure that we keep our discipline and say no to customers that we shouldn't be working with yet and say yes to the correct customers and make sure that we're growing at the right way so that we're keeping our culture. We have a really great culture of incredibly talented engineers and salespeople and uh, marketers and operations people all over the entire company. We have some of the best designers I've ever met, some of the best engineers. It's really, really difficult to keep that culture as you grow really fast, right? We went from, we hired 20 people. We went from 10 to 20 people a couple of years ago. We were going from, you know, 30 some people to 90 people over the next few months. I think we can handle that and keep the culture really robust. But it's when we go from 90 to 1,000 people is when most companies kind of lose their soul a little bit. And I think one of the things that I'm most focused on is how do we keep that soul of Fulcrum alive so that we continue to push these values forward without having to micromanage just as well, is, part of our existence. Challenge, right? I mean, I started my company here in Memphis, uh, FedEx, as we raised them to Memphis, the logistics company. But I started with eight employees. I had five, 550 in Memphis and uh, 120 in Europe. And you start, you do, trying to carry that culture through. It's great you recognize that. Uh-huh. Listen, how do people get in touch with you if they want to have any questions or, or want to learn more about your product or your company? I always invite anybody who's listening to a podcast, at least, just to reach out directly. I'm not, my email's not a, uh, not hidden. It's just sunny, like the weather, S-U-N-N-Y at fulcrumpro.com. And if you are a, a, a manufacturer or someone who works in the ERP space or anybody that just wants to talk and wants to pick my brain, at least for now, um, I have the bandwidth to just take those emails and I'm always happy to to receive an email from someone who's listening. So uh, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Great. I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. It's interesting. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Certainly wish you the best in the future. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing and Supply Chain CEOs. If you're a successful CEO in manufacturing or supply chain and would like to be part of the program, please visit www.martinharsberger.com apply. If you got some value out of the interview, please share it on social media. We'd really appreciate it. Also, if you know someone that would make a great guest, tag them and let them know about the show. Again, our mission is to focus on manufacturing and supply chain CEOs. We'd like to share your story and provide industry trends and updates that would interest our listeners. We're regularly putting out new episodes and content. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up ratings and interviews go a long way in promoting the show. You can connect with me on social media. I'm on LinkedIn at uh, Martin Harsberger or through my website, www.martinharsberger.com. Again, we appreciate it. Thanks for listening.